2: Introducing the new Starbucks Pistachio Cream Cold Brew. Silky Pistachio Cream Cold Foam tops our bold, smooth, cold brew for a delicious twist on a favorite winter flavor. Make today a good day. Order ahead on the Starbucks app. If you look for it, every day has cause for celebration. Celebrate a friend for their promotion baby wedding life thing. Celebrate yourself for keeping the couch warm. It's no easy feat, especially if it's a big couch. Or maybe you just want to celebrate living in 2023 where you can get beer, wine, and spirits delivered from Drizzly in under 60 minutes without leaving said couch. So download the Drizzly app or go to drizzly.com. That's D R I Z L Y.com and get your favorite drinks delivered today.
3: Welcome to the Rock's Back Pages podcast. I'm Mark Pringle in Barney Hoskins' absence as Barney's taking a, a well-earned rest. I'm here with my colleague Jasper Mirison Bowie. And I'm also here with Rock Back Pages' very own femme fatale, Jennifer, Dr. Jennifer otter Hi, Jennifer. It's great to have you on.
0: Can I just take you with me to all my interviews for that kind of welcome? Because <laughs> I... I, I... I've been described as many things, but I don't know if Femme Fatale is one of them. So I'm happy to take that. Thank you so much. Hi,
1: Jennifer. Hi,
0: Gorge. And you know that I'm like the I'm like the total cheerleader slash fangirl of all three of you. Like it's just it's like a hot toddy parade whenever I get to come on or come in the office
3: and see you. <laughs> this is the second time you've been a guest on, on a podcast, which is and you're marvelous the first time, and we expect you to be equally marvelous this time. No pressure. No pressure. Oh, oh. You're here because. Your book on Nico, You Are Beautiful and You Are Alone, the biography of Nico, has just been published literally last week. Is that correct?
0: It is out last week on Faber and Faber and coming out in America on the
3: 10th of August. Fantastic. So tell us about the book, about why why you chose this as a subject, etc. I wish I could say that
0: I was this super cool person that was like, oh, my God, Nico needs a book. And I've been craving this for my entire life. I (laughs) I wish I would. Sadly, I'm not. Um, What happened is I I just I was out having wine, as one does in Soho. And I just was like, there needs to be some cooler, more obscure women biographies after two Bottles of wine sounds like a great idea. And I've been really pushing to do a Laura Brannigan biography, which nobody else has any interest in. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) So, so any takers out there, holla. And so, I turned to our friend, Dr. Google, and I was just like, what are the top, you know, barely, there should be like a breathalyzer on my phone. What are the top women? (laughs) female artists of all time and nico came up and i was just like okay i know she's on that velvet underground record and i'm a massive royal tenenbaums fan and there's this great scene in royal tenenbaums which has a nico song but i didn't really know anything else and i was just like how has this chick been like built so high up as so important when me who's supposed to be this like scholar of music does not i can't pull really 10 fast facts about her out of my head. And so I became kind of I, be, I became kind of like obsessed with it. So I I literally I like spent probably like a week just on the rocks back pages website reading things about her, trying to figure out like who was this woman? And the more I read about her, the more I just was like, "Oh my god, this is this story was just so Sad and crazy and unbelievable I just wanted to write more and then because I'm a total nerd like I have a I have a PhD my PhD is literally on joy division I always want to know and you guys know this now from doing the the Rocksback pages where do these sources come from like I could sit here and say Jasper is a binge eater of corn dogs and write that up somewhere, <laughs> but until I see it or it's officially, it has to be official. You know what I mean?
1: I don't think I've ever eaten a corn dog in my life. I don't. What, oh my god! What, you're, yeah. You know.
0: You know what? I knew that. I knew there was something missing in your life, and I've just <laughs> identified it. I'm so happy. Thank you. That was, fr- that, was that. that. was my freebie for you. I get, <laughs> one of the things I really saw is you know there there is another huge biography on Nico, which just because I'm a nerd, I'm like. Where did these interviews come from? Because one thing about Nico, she does not, she did not talk very much. And so I became really just forensic about I wanted to get to the bottom of all these myths. I wanted to track down as much as I could about her. Literally, I was trying to, I literally was wanted to do like a day by day of her entire life. It got pretty obsessive at one point.
3: Wow. I mean, it's it's an extraordinary story. I demolished it. I just finished it last week. I mean, it's absolutely fascinating. I mean, I first became aware of her, I guess, when I was about 12, when my brother bought Velvet Underground and Nico back home in 1968 and, you know, found her really extraordinary. And I have to say, I was then quite baffled by her solo career when she suddenly started appearing with this very, very small harmonium, which sort of came up to her knees and singing these remarkably gloomy songs. <laughs> and we got this great quote. I mean, one of the people that you talk to a lot for this book is the marvellous Danny Fields, who, who uh, we adore.
1: Love.
4: Yeah,
3: we, we, I mean, we, he, was, he was a guest on our podcast a couple a couple of years back, and we all just basically fell in love with him. Yeah. I've met him a couple of times before, and he was great. He was great. And um, you've got this great quote here. Chic crowds turned up at Nico's opening And there was only an organ on stage And she sat down at it And there was one spotlight on her, Danny Fields recalled It was like a child discovering a musical instrument For the first time She'd just press one note and bend her ear towards the keyboard And listen to it And press it again and again And then another note and she'd listen to that I mean, absolutely That, that catches exactly what she's like When she first went solo. I think
2: Without a guide Without a
0: I mean, I do have to say, just add on one thing about Danny Fields in particular. So there was a a couple of very strict deadlines on the book. And one of them happened to be on my birthday this year. And Danny was having a bunch of dental work done. So the only day that he could... I I said, Danny, I really want to run we had we'd gotten like the promotion like the non-edited versions of the full book and danny had gotten one and i'm like danny you're like the only person i know that was there for the whole thing you know what i mean and i want you to go if you're willing i want you to go through this and because I, and also i knew if i got something wrong the first person to call me would be danny going what is this? Yes. you know what i mean <laughs> so uh <laughs> So he, blessed him, so it was the night of my birthday and, you know, he'd had some dental work and it was the only night that he could actually talk to me. I was on the phone with him for six hours, you guys, cause, because Danny literally had gone. Wow. I mean, I thought I was forensic. Danny went through the whole book and he was like, on page 362, you use the word discerning. I wouldn't say discerning. I would pick a different <laughs> word to describe that, and the reason I bring that up is because that scene that you just described it was there's so much mythology and misinformation about Nico that I thought was so important to make sure that I got as close as I could to what was factually actually happening. And also what it felt like to be there. And I think that that scene captures what it was like. Like, here's a woman that thought, I can never make music on my own. And she literally is in front of a crowd by herself with an instrument for the first time. And it's like, oh my God, I'm here doing this. And that, that scene with Dianne is such a good example of that.
1: I mean, what struck me is how well researched the whole book. I've been reading it as well. and I mean, you go as far as like tracking down her Geburtsurkunde, her birth certificate, you know, crawling through records of German bureaucracy <laughs> and such trying to figure out the, her early story. I found that really fascinating. Oh, thank I, you.
3: I've got to point out at this point that, that Jasper is half German. So, you uh, know, he, he, he knows. Careful he what knows, I say.
0: I was going to say the yeah. accent. Oh, my gosh. I had to do the introduction on the Audible. And I thought I was really, at first I was really disappointed because I wanted to do the whole Audible book. Yeah. And they they emailed me and they're like, oh, we already have someone to read it. And I was like, what? <laughs> and it took me like an hour just to read five pages. And I realized I'm so American. Like I, I, I posted these pictures on my Instagram of me trying to figure out how to say different German and French words that are just in the introduction. Because I just did the Audible for the introduction. Yeah, yeah. And it's like, Warte Bach. What do you and I what? thought it sounded great i don 't even know what it was, but it was like I, I thought I sounded brilliant, but like all my European friends were like, what the hell are you like even, even yeah it just americans are <laughs> Americans are not supposed to learn any other language but english we 're too stupid to master more than one language
3: anyway this is just fantastic stuff. so we're, we're this week we're featuring on the site well a big excerpt from your book, but also thank you i think i've I discovered myself and posted quite a while back extraordinary was peter jones meeting her the record mirror in in august 65 in england when she was signed to immediate um which also kind of brings up another small thing is that if there's one other person that one could possibly relate to nico it's actually marianne faithful
0: Mm -hmm.
3: who had you know a similar in a way a similar set of experiences including addiction which marianne successfully kicked but but also there's there's a sort of in her subsequent... I mean, Marianne Faithful starting off as a kind of popstrel, which isn't the case for Nico, but you could say Chelsea Girls, her first solo album, is, is quite a kind of pop record. I, I happen to really rather like it. We'll be talking later about Jackson Brown. Jackson Brown actually features on that record and co-wrote or wrote some of the, the songs on it. But then when Nico went solo, her second and third and fourth albums in particular. They have very mournful quality. And you could say actually a similar thing about Marian Faithful's solo records. There is a, there's a similar quality to them. I mean, is it something you'd agree with or am I talking complete rubbish
1: here?
0: I think that you can <laughs> definitely draw parallels between the two of them. What I know about Nico mm-hmm. is that she had everything going against her coming, coming into the world. The only thing she had was her appearance. yes and that you cannot you cannot yeah. say enough what a huge what the barriers were especially like there's one article that you have featured on the website by the featured writer and she's talked she always brings up or when people bring up being german like it really was a thing for her in terms of the barrier Mm of being german and she did everything she could to try to distance herself from that and you cannot say you can't emphasize enough what a big deal that was then and she even though she spoke seven languages and she was quite funny did someone like someone like Marianne, who was more formally educated, that was something. Even if other people didn't pick up on it with Nico, sure. sh- she knew that. And there's this yeah. great clip actually when she's talking to Bob Dylan's manager, and he's telling her to be more like Marianne Faithful. Really? Yeah. And he's <laughs> like, "You need you need to look cute. You need to wear bows in your hair." And it's it's like this tension with nico always is her appearance because she's just like doesn't she feel ridiculous i'm not yeah. quoting it perfectly by the way but mm-hmm. she says like doesn't she feel ridiculous wearing a bow in her hair and like the the whole al grossman's just like the whole vibe is you need to do what you need to do to like move forward in this world and you can yeah. tell that nico, you can see the wheels like turning in nico's head but she also is just like oh god i don't want to have to do that so I think in retrospect, it's easier to draw those things, but not necessarily. Sure. They're not they're not that similar. They there's, there's similarities, but they're not that similar.
1: It's interesting that Jeffrey Cannon, in his in his piece that we're fe- one of the pieces that we're featuring of his, because he's the featured writer on on the week's homepage, is that he actually says she had the aura of a satanic Marianne faithful, <laughs> and that's in '68. So it's it's interesting that there was that parallel being drawn at the time as well.
0: There weren't very many. I mean, I wasn't yeah. alive then, but just if I look back so when I'm when I only say that not to say how young and fresh I am which I obviously am but to <laughs> note that this is this is me looking back in terms of what historically I can see I don't yes. think there was that many things women around so it wasn't mm. like you had this vast array of people to be like oh she's like so yeah. and so, it's like okay, we we had Jan Stroplin, yeah. we had Marianne Faithful, we had Grace. Like we had a handful of people. So it's like, yeah. who can we equate her to? No, sure. I think that that's a really important Absolutely. thing to look at. The Jeffrey Cannon's article is like one of my. I would say that that is a great example of a Nico interview in terms of she's not a verbose person. She was not a yeah. verbose person at all. But the things she said, it's. You can both, they're both very, very deep, but also you can project whatever meaning you
3: want onto them, which yeah. in some ways makes her the absolute perfect rock star. No, absolutely. I mean, one of the features of that interview is that the questions are considerably longer than the answers. Yeah. <laughs> you know,
1: you just look at it on the page and there's this paragraph and then there's a single single sentence. There's one which is particularly uh, sort of demonstrates that, which is, Jeffrey goes, I mean, questions like the ones I'm asking are on the brink of being meaningless. I'm just interested to know how you react to questions like that. Nico, yes.
0: <laughs> well, you have, yeah, you have to feel sorry for her because she does get these ridiculous questions like that all the time. You know yeah. what I mean? If yeah, you ever seen, sure. there's there's not that many filmed interviews of her, but you just see these on YouTube. she's standing there smoking, and you just you feel the boredom that she's having. Like, Mm -hmm. how is it like working with Lou Reed? And it's like, you know, I only had to watch them probably like 20 or 30 times to like transcribe what she was saying, but I wanted to shoot myself. And I'm just sitting there going, this poor woman is like, (laughs) that's 20 years ago. You're asking me about something I did for like, I mean, any celebrity is going to have to deal with that. Everybody has to deal with that if you're in the public, in the public. But here she has these, all these are records. She's made movies of, you know, of dubious quality, but still she's done all this other stuff. And all (laughs) that someone wants to know is about, lou reed or something she, andy warhol it just you're gonna see her going oh lord have mercy you know what i mean <laughs> so
3: um you do feel you really do feel for her that's very interesting the, 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 the bits in the book about her experiences with velvet underground are very difficult to read because she was basically foisted on the band mm-hmm. by andy warhol to the great resentment of, of the band. I mean, it's, it's interesting. She did have a long, ongoing, on-and-off professional relationship with John Cale that lasted for many years. But Lou Reed was beastly to her, uh,
0: Yeah, like Jasper, you sent me over a Lou Reed article and I like glanced through it and I'm like... Pfft. Uh, Which which I know a lot. I know a lot of people are just like blasphemy. But just the way he treated Mm. her was I just think, you know, and again, I am looking at it in 2020 or hindsight or whatever, you you know, whatever Mm. thing proverb you want to use right there. But he treated her so appalling. Here's this very fragile person who I don't think that she ever really had a goal or I think she just was always on a search for identity and escape. And the way he treated her was appalling in every single way. And I just mm. cannot help but, you know, people are like I love Lou. He was so nice to me. I'm just I it's funny because I gained a load of weight while I was writing that book. And I think it's because I was eating and drinking constantly, because I was just so stressed writing it. And I just was so angry the entire time writing mm. the book too. Like that's what I came away with was just incredible anger. And it doesn't help that I'm writing now a book about Britney Spears. So it's like this can, it's, I need to just write a book about like dogs (laughs) or some, or some sort of other thing that's like, (laughs) you know, the elements that has nothing to do with with any sort of gender sexuality issues. But yeah, like I, I really think that people do not pay have never paid attention or looked at what really happened during the Velvet Underground years and the real story behind that. And that was actually, I was really concerned about how people were going to react when they read that.
3: Yeah. Mm. Yeah. I mean you it's it's worth pointing out, and I think it's it's right that you do it that you you wrote this book from the perspective of twenty first century feminism. I think is is that a reasonable thing to say? And I, I I think that it's easy to sort of say, well, you know, boys will be boys, that was what it's like then. But actually it, it is important that that those behaviours are called out. I mean it's like a sort of very post fact me too sort of approach.
0: I mean, I'm gonna let you guys in on it's not that big of a secret because I've said it in other interviews, and it's completely off brand. and my age is gonna kill me for saying this, but I hate me too. I hate Me Too. And like when Me when me, when Me Me Too first started happening, my auntie, who's like a hardcore feminist, I'll never forget this. She and I were, I was in California and she and I were driving in the car and I'm like, I hate Me Too, it's shit. And she just like went off on me. She's just like, you don't know what it was like. You don't da 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 da. She's like, you don't know what my generation did for you. And I'm like, sis, let me tell you, like you try working in the music industry being six feet tall, big boobs and blonde hair in the nineties. Let me tell you then, you know? Yeah, yeah. And I definitely think, I have a certain amount of what do you think is going to happen if you go up to a guy's room? What do you think is going to happen? Like, I definitely have some of that for sure. But at the same time, I so I so what I really, you know, I got one review, for example, where the someone reviewed me and she's like, Otter like, why does she have to use so much gender in the book? Couldn't she have like made Nico genderless? And I'm like, you stupid cow, like that's the whole point of it. So when you're saying like a 21st century feminist, mm-hmm. I think. We have to be – we cannot be silly and ridiculous because then it just makes the mm-hmm. whole – it just belittles and diminishes the whole idea of a feminist perspective. I'm not saying you're doing that at all, sure. by the way. But I think it's <laughs> important just to look – what I was trying to – I guess what I was trying to do is like lay out the facts. You know what I mean? Kind of like what I was doing with my auntie. Like sure. I was trying to lay out the facts. Like if, if some dude, you're drunk and he's like, come up to my room for a, for a nut cap. He doesn't mean a little like knitted thing with a pom-pom on top and you're going to sit there and like eat. <laughs> popcorn it probably means something else you know what i mean so be yeah, i guess yeah, be smart yeah. is what i'm trying to say and like that's kind of what i try to do with the nico book because like, i i wasn't trying to like and it's been written in quite a few reviews that i had like this feminist agenda when i was writing it i to be my editor alexa at faber she really pulled me back because there was so much more there was so much more like this person wrote this and that's a bunch of bullshit this happened over this is the, the things that have been said about her are just horrible but I had to really pull back from that and go, these are the facts. And you, you as the reader, you decide what you think is true. And that was really important to me. Sure. And does that make mm. sense? And I hope that comes across in what the product. Absolutely.
3: I mean, I, I really found the whole, such a, it's a long story. That's the, the thing is that she may have been at a serious heroin addiction, but she lived for you know, quite a long time. Mm. And I found the stuff about London and Manchester, that sort of period of her life, which I knew very little about. I mean, ironically, I'm actually, uh, I know Graham Dadle reasonably well. And uh, I love what he does as a musician under the name of Gagarin these days. Mm. And, and he, you, you you talked, you spoke to him and it, this curious way, she sort of found a home in Manchester. Yeah. Is that sort of fair to say. Yeah.
0: That was, you know, what is funny is I'm surprised that, I mean, the book's only been out a week, so I shouldn't say it's like it's been out mm-hmm. for months and months and months, but I'm surprised in the first people that have read it and like fans that have been tweeting at me and emailing me. I'm surprised that that's not the thing they lock onto because to me, maybe people don't read as fast as we do, but to me the, the when she lives in, <laughs> yeah, I'm a total nerd when she lives in Brixton. And then when she lives in Manchester, to me, those are the most fascinating parts in the book. To me, that is when, the real kind of interesting character, because you know, when they're you're doing a you're doing the book promotion, they're just like, who are the big celebs you talk to? And I was lucky enough to talk mm-hmm. to like Iggy Pop, and I love Dave Navarro. He gave me some great stuff for the book. But yeah, yeah. the people the people is like, that I really got the most from are like the Grams. You know what I mean? Are are James yeah. Young people like that um, that knew her and lived with her, and this are as like a normal person you'd see day to day. Those were the people that I thought really made the book come alive and. Yeah. Yeah. I think that in Manchester, she finally found people. They didn't care about her celebrity. They mm-hmm. didn't care about what she could do for them. They literally were just like, you're, they saw potential in her as a person. And that, that I think is what's most heartbreaking about what happens to her, especially like Babs, her tour manager. Like that's such a great relationship. And the Jane Goldstraw, that friendship. There's just all these kind of really nice moments at that, in the Manchester years that, That I really hope people discover and dwell on more and, and, and embrace that part of Nico as much as much as the bad kind of mythology people have in
3: the past. Sure, absolutely. I mean, the other thing, of course, is is this relationship she had with Ibiza. And and we've Mm -hmm. we've got this Richard Williams interview with her from 1970, where she effectively predicts her death. She says, a couple of hours after we had parted, she rang to say that she'd changed her mind. I can't stand the thought of going to New York. So I'm flying to Ibiza. It's my favourite place. And I think I'll die there. Mm -hmm. I mean, she did did tend to say quite a lot that she was going to die and die in Ibiza. And again, I think, Going back to the earlier part of her life, um, which I found fascinating, is her relationship with her mother mm-hmm. and that extraordinary period when her her mother moved out to Ibiza and basically went mad, to all intents mm-hmm. and purposes. I mean, that was extraordinary. I mean, how, how did you? Who were you talking to to get all this information?
0: So that part, I was. This is where. Again, like one of the great parts about writing the book is the people that you meet and how one person kind of leads to another person, leads to another person, leads to Mm -hmm. another person, especially someone like Nika, where there's the obvious, there's the obvious people that you're going to hit up. You know what I mean? There's the Iggy Pops, the John Kales of this, that, and the other. And, and, you know, I, again, like, I'm so grateful to Iggy. He's been so wonderful and sweet and supportive of me. That said, like Danny Fields, he said, oh, when I was in Germany, this is how I, this is how I'm explaining how I got to the mom's information. When I was mm-hmm. in Germany, I met these people and they like wanted to do a book on Nico, but they didn't. You should talk to them. And so Danny gave me somebody's number, and then that those people gave me somebody else's number. And it was kind of like this – it was like a Hansel and Gretel kind of like breadcrumb situation. And so through that, I ended up getting an interview. So one one guy I met just literally – it was like five, five people. It was like a Kevin Bacon situation. Like five people removed from Danny. This guy had done <laughs> an interview with Nico's Aunt Helma before she passed nice. away. So she had all the tea. Like she had – and it had never been published before, it hadn't been anywhere, so she had all this information. and then also Nico's cousin, the people that Danny had actually directly referred me to, they had done an interview with her with Nico's cousin before he passed away. So I had all this great like primary source information that I was able to get my hands on, which was great.
3: It's really extraordinary, and then of course there's all the stuff about her brief affair with Alan De D- Alan Delon. Delon, mm-hmm. how do you pronounce it uh, mm-hmm. the the French the French movie star who is well, what one can safely say he is the father of her son, even though he absolutely refused to accept this. Uh, and also all the stuff about her son's fascinating her uh, relationship with her son. It's just yeah. so complicated and difficult.
0: It is. I mean, both those things. I mean, I think. You just feel for her. I think it's easy to be like, okay, she, whatever the relationship was with her and Delone, like we don't know. But mm-hmm. I think a lot of people, I mean, myself, you have that one relationship that's, you know, like I came from a, a broken family. Nico came from a broken family. You have this one person that for whatever reason you fixate on. And when mm-hmm. that goes badly, it just kind of everything crumbles. And then you can really kind of see how... I think for her, that seemed like a step in the direction towards I can have my own little family i can I'm accepted I'm with you know i'm i I can be somebody, not because he was famous necessarily, but just because she just saw traits in him that she found appealing, yeah, and when that goes away, it's just kind of like everything kind of goes south for her, and I don't think you know I've gotten a lot of questions, oh, she was such a bad mother and you know, I never said she was a great mother. I think she did the best she could with the skills that she had being the person mm. she was at that time. Like I would never say she did anything on purpose to harm her son. I think she did the best being the person she was. I think she really loved Ari.
1: Yeah. It's, 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 immense. it's a very sad story. I was wondering how you kind of would evaluate looking back on her music. Mm. I mean, going from that first Velvet's album which sort of arguably is is one of the more famous Velvet's albums, and she kind of manages to put her mark on that Mm -hmm. despite being kind of rejected by the band, and then right through to the Camera Obscura, her last album. Obviously, interestingly, produced by John Cale, so there's kind of that circle there, but Mm -hmm. her sound changes a lot. I mean, we'll mention Chelsea Girl, I'm sure, when we talk about Jackson Brown again, but I mean, there are some really beautiful songs on there, and and even through, I mean, I was listening this morning to My Funny Valentine from Camera Obscura, her version of that. that, and it's just... It's exquisite. It's so lovely. It's really, I mean, her really deep voice is just beautiful on that track.
0: I mean, one thing that people don't know, and again, this is one of those things that I hope they pick up on Phil Rainford, who was in Durritti's column, he was Nico's tour manager and kind of producer like a live tour producer. And it's just fantastic. Mm-hmm. He, like his, my interviews I did with him about Nico were wonderful. And I just bring that up because one of the things in the book that he told me is how he and Nico would s- sing show tunes from like the great American songbook and My Funny Valentine being one, you know, kind of, one of those yeah. great songs. And I don't. I don't think people really equate that with her. So when she... Mm -hmm. Chelsea Girl was definitely a record that was patchwork songs that people made for nico and kind of contributed to her having a solo record and i think when she was able to break free with marble index that's when she really kind of let her freak flag fly and it was like this is who nico really really was and that was the evolution like you're talking about jasper the different sounds is her letting those different influences she's having she traveled all around the world you know and like if you ask like babs or if you ask jane they said what music did she listen to she listened to jazz she listened to African music just in a classical music Mm -hmm. and i think that's where you get those different kind of sounds that you're hearing in her records and why it's not all the same however you know then you get a my funny valentine and that is a reflection of that like great american songbook type of thing so i think people like to think of nico as being very one-dimensional when she really wasn't
2: Sweet comic Valentine You make me
3: smile with my heart. I mean interestingly, I mean I listened to her entire discography. um, Oh my god, you're still alive? (laughs) And I'm just just going (laughs) to (laughs) lie. And and, I mean, the Marble Index, I think, is a really striking record. I think John Cale did a fabulous job because he introduced all kinds of very atonal and very edgy elements into that sort of stuff. You know, it's a really interesting record. Didn't get on with Desert Shore Mice personally. Really?
0: Really didn't. Do you like Afraid?
3: uh you know, i just know you know I, find, I i stopped listening i found myself stopping listening to it i find really? it boring you're good kind of, yeah you ghosted um, it <laughs> you're
0: like bye-bye <laughs> i'm out of here okay
3: but the uh, but i i really liked the end uh i thought that was a really interesting record and again sonically it's a very very interesting record hated drama of exile mm. and really liked camera obscura it's like you know, yes, no, yes, no, yes, no, <laughs> but it's a but it's a very interesting discography. I mean, it really is. You, it's, it's, it's striking. I mean, "Drama
0: of Exile" one of the greatest titles for an album ever, especially reflecting what she was going through. That record sure. was just riddled with issues and problems. So it's not yeah. really it's not really surprising that the end result is challenging to listen to. To be fair, yeah. Although when you read when you read her talking about it, it's like ooh. It's kind of it's kind of like when someone when someone describes like I shouldn't say Nando's a lot of people like Nando's but if you read like a McDonald's like paprika and cayenne pepper come together blissfully in this wrap and then you get this like wilted thing from Deliveroo you're like Mar like that's kind of how I felt
3: uh, on, on,
0: on trauma. So that was a fabulous analogy. <laughs> I just realized uh, people are not great. able to see my hand gesture when I did that. But yeah, it's like, you're looking at something going, <laughs> what happened to the, it's, it's like, it's, it's like a dating app. You're like, this picture is, is not new. It's like from like 50 years ago of you, but yeah. Okay.
3: <laughs> we mentioned Chelsea girl. I think this is probably a good time to start talking about the new, the new audio this week on mm. the site. It's a um, November, 2014, Adam Sweeting interview with Jackson Brown. And it, you know, Jackson Brown. I mean, he was so young when he was in New York with Nico. He doesn't talk about that in this interview, sadly. But I mean, he was what sixteen, seventeen, and he was writing, writing songs.
0: I mean, I was like, "You go, Nico!" Being like, you know, she was rocking the cradle of love, and you know, she had her eye on the prize for the the, <laughs> the hot the hot PYT. And there's this great—I think <laughs> I—I'm I, I, hoping it made it into the book. There's this great quote. He's like, "I was living on fish sticks and wearing loafers." You know, when he went to New York and it's just and as as someone from California that lives in England, it's not quite the same, but it's like you're just kind of like it's just such a different vibe than anything you grew up with and nothing can prepare you for it. So just the thought of those two together, I can just see her being like, oh, yeah, I want a hunk of that fine looking man. You know what I mean? <laughs>
3: <laughs> you- with a Ger- with a German accent, yeah. oh, <laughs> I a hunk of such fine-looking like, man. <laughs>
0: that's that's yeah. I'm sorry, you're trying to go talk. On, about here we go. Ja- Yeah, you're, you're trying to talk about the Jackson Brown interview. But I have to tell you guys one other thing about Nico. Pretty much everybody that knew her, when they would talk about things she would say, they would all do her voice.
3: Yes.
1: So some yes. Of, some of
0: my favorite interviews. People just like, can't seem to resist. Oh my god. Iggy Pop doing Nico's voice. Oh, it's just, it's just <laughs> <laughs> I mean, priceless. Absolutely I, I, priceless. I absolutely
3: oh. love it. So, yeah. Okay, back, back to this, this, sorry. Back to Jackson Brown. This tribute album where people had covered his songs called Looking Into You had just come out, and he hadn't heard it until it was finished. He had no involvement. He's, he, he talks, he's, he, he really appreciates it. He, he likes what people had done with his songs. And then he goes back to talking about the... Early days of well the base, the birth of country rock in Los Angeles, meeting Don Henley, what a precocious bunch of people they were. LA then and now how the cheap rents available. You could rent a place oh. in, in in Echo Park or Laurel Canyon oh. very little you know uh, uh, me my envy you can you come kind of smell yeah. it from oh, here yeah. you know um, <laughs> uh, child
0: can you feel mine cuz like let me just let me you know I'm, all i have to say is californian living in england would i be here if i could afford to live back in california i think not child i think not i mean <laughs> you can you can't get you can't get like a lean to between crack and hoe down there now for less than 2 million but back to jackson brown sorry yes. back to jackson brown yes. well let's
3: listen to a clip this is him talking about sharing on the cover of this tribute album is a photograph of a piano, and he talks about this piano and about sharing with Glenn Frey. So let's, let's have a listen to this, Jasper.
1: So that. <laughs> Talking about the, the the house, you know, you living downstairs from Fry, because right? he talks about that in that Eagles film, doesn't he? About how you how, uh, how he listened
4: to He's made me the most famous tea home. drinker in America. Yes, that's right. <laughs> yeah. Well, so I'm like, glad I didn't know that he was listening to me write the, write songs. I mean that, I because I, I mean you you don't need to think that anybody's listening to you because you do have to repeat you do have to kind of oh. you know pound on the thing over and over again to get it to get what you want and. I mean, I was just learning to play piano at that time too. I had a piano that had been in my family for for many years. As a matter of fact, it's the piano on the cover of that tribute record. You see a piano through the doorway, and this is the piano that I, you know, we used to look through that doorway and see when I was three. My father's piano. It was his father's <laughs> piano. Yeah, yeah. And that piano was the piano that was downstairs from Glenn Fry in this in, in this sort of it was a utility basement underneath the apartment that he that he lived in. And I mean, I had lived next door to them. I got him that apartment, and then my, uh, I figured I could pay like $35 instead of 70 by moving into this sort of, you know, like, basement. It wasn't even legal to rent because it didn't, only had one door. I mean, you have to have two doors for the fire the fire laws. And, but that, that's the piano that was there, and, I, and it was probably, uh, I don't even know how we got it in there, because this whole place was on a, on a hill.
0: Doctor, my
4: eyes have seen the year.
3: <laughs> oh you oh you that's how they got it in there <laughs> you anyway, know he's, he's very interesting i mean he he, he really i mean he talks about earlier in the, the, the thing about um meeting don henley don henley singing and drumming which is not the thing not many people do yeah I mean, uh and how impressed he was he was singing a ray Childs song and oh. uh whilst, whilst drumming he talks about the process of writing songs he talks about He's very. He talks a lot about politics, and mm. he is known as a very political figure. But he talks about not writing political songs. There is one exception on the album that he's just released at the time, um, "Standing on the Beach." But he, he he generally doesn't like to actually kind of write explicitly political songs whilst being a, a political activist. But uh, so let's listen to this this clip. This is you know just a, about that about political songs. <laughs>
4: Well, I wrote a song before my first album called, well, it was a version of Stagger Lee. And it was in it, I talked about, like, Bobby Seale, and, you know, I put Bobby Seale and the Black Panthers into the song Stagger Lee, which is, I think it's fairly politically engaged to do that. Hmm. (laughs) I mean, I had this line like, Bobby Seale said Stagger Lee was a brother off the block whose actions had to speak for him because he couldn't relate to talk. Well, listen, all you millionaires, there's something you should know. He ever gets his shit together, some of you gonna have to go. <laughs> and that was like a ver- that was like to the to the John uh, Mr. Be John Hurt or Dave Van Ronk sort of finger picking version of Staggerly. All right, all right. And you know, I mean, I, in the end, I didn't record that song. And, and um, but I read about those things. I mean, I read you know Soul on Ice when I was when I was writing Rock Me on the Water. You know, it was like there was they, they just it just didn't come up in my music. Very much, you know I mean, I sang that song for Geffen too and he was like, hmm, what's wrong with being a millionaire I don't know if, I don't know if that's one of your better songs you know? <laughs> And he wasn't a millionaire at the time he just wanted to be a millionaire, but he is you know but you know that it's coming truly as the dawn the battle for the future baby Which side are you? come on come on come on if you come on come on come on come on come on
3: come on if you <laughs> i just love that story about playing it to david geffen he talks i mean he's quite fond of david geffen because david geffen i think was very good to him in, in in a in a professional sense for he talks about geffen's early support all kinds of stuff and and he talks very fondly about his father and at the end of the at the end of this podcast, we'll play a clip where he talks about his father. Where they clearly had a, a really interesting relationship. These, mm. these, these, he
1: these he guys. comes across listening to the interview. He comes across as a really nice guy. It, you know, it was a really pleasant thing to listen to him. Mean, he kind of drifts a bit. He's, he sort of sometimes he'll start answering a question and then have some reminiscence that distracts him from the thing. But it was a really pleasant listening experience. So I'd really recommend going listening to it. It's just a really nice interview and really interesting. He talks Jennifer, interesting about a lot of things. Jennifer, what's your take on Jackson Brown?
0: Well, it's funny because I didn't really even think about Jackson Brown until I met Barney Hoskins, who loves Jackson Brown. <laughs> my interactions with Jackson Brown had been: my parents had the Lawyers in Love record, and then he was on the—I think it's the—it's either Last American Virgin or Fast Times at Ridgemont High soundtrack. He has a tune on there, mm-hmm. and. That was it, and so I remember when I one of one of my conversations with Barney. is like Jackson Brown, and I'm like, oh, it's like a one hit wonder. And Barney was like, what? <laughs> How dare you?
3: <laughs> I mean, so I, I, you know, I'm very ambivalent about him. I mean, there's the, the, something about that sort of fairly solipsistic singer songwriter stuff that I. I it's, sticks in my crawl mm. and he also wrote take it easy which is a hanging offense you know <laughs>
0: the,
3: the, the big e- eagles hit take
0: it easy. <laughs>
3: oh,
0: sorry I, I just want to piss you off some more
3: <laughs> but, No, I, I agree with with Jasper
1: about listening to this interview he's someone that I'd Pretty quite like to share a drink with, you know. I mean, I mean, he, I've never really listened to his music, so I, I'm totally, you know. I mean, I have to just admit that I don't know. I don't know his output very well at all. I mean, do I, these I days I can sing
0: a medley from the '80s if you want.
1: Yeah, go for it.
0: She must be somebody's <laughs> baby, cause she's so fine. Do you know? But do you know what about Jackson? Do you know what's about Jackson Brown? And <laughs> Does that happen a lot on the podcast? Uh, no, so much. <laughs> do you know the thing about Jackson Brown for me is, and this happens a lot for me, is I fall in love with the mythology, that whole Echo Park, Maholland Drive. Mm-hmm. Like he's talking there about, yeah. about how cheap it was and how they got the piano up there. I love all that. Like I'm talking to a band right now that came up in the Paisley Underground in Los Angeles right time about doing a project with them. And just it doesn't even matter like this is probably a horrible thing to say on a music podcast especially but the mythology and the relationships and the history that gets me off more than the music in a Mm -hmm. lot of ways like i love that and just to think of them like smoking weed and like strumming like you know tank 80 sorry to say it one more time but you know just like that (laughs) (laughs) you can just see that probably wasn't like that
3: No, absolutely. I, th- I mean, one of the reasons why I think the books Barney wrote about Los Angeles, um, you know, Waiting for the Sun and, and the the Cocaine Cowboys Treaties, was it's an extraordinary set of stories, this community of musicians, all sort of like playing in each other's homes and all that sort mm-hmm. of stuff. It's great. I just don't terribly like much of the music they mm-hmm. produce, which is, you know, you my not- bad. I mean, I love Joni Mitchell. I absolutely adore Joni Mitchell. Mm. But, Fleetwood um, Mac? No? You know, no Fleetwood Mac. Well, that's a sort of different thing. That's a sort of different thing. You know, they got a sort of different history, which is, you know, oh, British best story British ever. History, may I point oh, out. look at you! It's a British <laughs>
0: history. Mrs. Dachoir <Don't> is <laughs> here to tell you <laughs>
3: such a story. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, something along those lines. Okay. Um, but I mean, really thinking about the Canyon scene and, uh, uh, and the Eagles mm. and so on and so forth. Um, yeah. The Eagles have made a few records I kind of do like, but something I really despise about the Eagles as well, mm. you know, and uh, I find it hard to kind of get past that. Take it easy,
4: take it easy, don't
3: let the sound of your own wheels.
1: So anyway, that's the audio. I guess we start talking about what's new in the library. Well, we should mention we should mention Biz Markie. <gasps> yes. Uh, oh, the, the, we?
3: the very, very, very sad death of yeah. Biz Markie, uh, Of diabetes, which unfortunately is something which kills all too many African-Americans way before that time. We're running a, a piece which is basically about Cold Chillin' records. Paula Hute and John McCready from New Musical Express in 1988. Mm. And it's a, it's a charming interview because... Bismarck is such a nice guy Mm. you know I mean he comes over as funny he's called the clown prince of rap you know he doesn't take himself at all seriously he wasn't one of those sort of big dick rappers you know what
0: who that's so wrong coming out of your mouth I'm like what just happened what just happened Jasper (laughs) I feel very uncomfortable all of a sudden
3: (laughs) <laughs> and he, he says things like you know when i was young i was the class clown i'd get on with everybody to make them laugh they called me biz at school my real name is mark hall marky for mark and biz for really busy getting into trouble i would go to the store and buy pieces of candy for 12 cents and sell them to the kids for 25 cents plus i would do all the usual stuff like pulling people's pants down <laughs> i suppose i haven't changed much which <laughs> is really nice this uh, interesting fact is that it was him being sued by Gilbert O'Sullivan for the sample of Alone Again Naturally, which led to the need to clear samples. Mm. That was the beginning of mm. all of that. Clearing samples, my completely changed the way hip-hop was made and the finances of hip-hop as well. Anyway, it's, 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 it's very, very sad. Jasper, have you listened to much Bismarck I mean,
1: I, I was going to say that his niceness actually comes across on his records. I mean, if you listen to like a record like Yeah, Just a Friend, oh. it's probably his most famous, famous yes. track. I mean, the way he the way he sings the chorus even it's just like you know he's so unselfconscious <laughs> it's and it's just it's really fun it's just really nice to listen you can just hear this guy yeah. loving making music and loving being involved in it and just having a fun time telling a story in form of rap and song and it's just great I, yeah he's he's yeah it's a very sad loss <laughs>
3: I mean, there's another great song called Chinese Food, which is just hilarious. It's basically kind of you know reading the menu from a Chinese restaurant in great chance. Anyway, so farewell then to the rather wonderful Bismarcky. I think I'll now tell you about what's going to the library this week. We've reached that moment. Okay, last week, Richard Goldstein's review of Don Pennebecker's Don't Look Back Dylan movie from the New York Times in 67. And he says, don't look back offers only guesses, but they're persuasive indeed. The dialogue sounds spontaneous. The scenes look utterly unstaged. The bobbing, wobbling camera convinces us, as no newsreel could, that we can smell the venom on Bob Dylan's tongue. This is the danger in cinema verite, as well as its greatest virtue. Uh, it's, it's, it's good. As usual, Richard Goldstein such a good writer and it's always a pleasure to read his stuff. Richie York reporting on John Lennon, Rolling Stone, 1970. And John says things like, one of our friends here in Toronto has come up with the idea that the new year should not be called 1970 AD. Everyone who is into peace and awareness will regard the new year as year one AP for after peace. All our letters and calendars from now on will use this new method. (laughs) He's the
0: original <laughs> Kanye West, isn't he? <laughs> I just made that connection. Heard it here that's first. Such, that's fantastic. Absolutely. Isn't it, it. I mean, he, Oh, my God. Yeah, he,
3: throughout this, he talks bullshit. Yeah. He just talks absolute hundred-proof bullshit, you know, and everyone worships him. So you're right. I love that. That's fantastic. Uh, <laughs> just mentioned we were also posting Barry Kane's 1977 review of the Sex Pistols at Notre Dame Hall, which is interesting because it's Sid Vish's very first show with the, the pistols it's a good bit of writing too a year later Roy Carr interviewing Keith Richards for the NME and he says to wake up with 15 mounted standing around your bed after they've spent an hour trying to wake you up like they can't even wake you up to arrest you it's basically extensively about his heroin stuff John Harris interviewing Tom, your radio head enemy 92. And he says, I want to be happy. I want to look good. I want to command the situation I'm in, but that'll never happen. <laughs> oh. <laughs> it's
1: so hard.
3: Oh, I know. Poor old Poor Johnny Cigarettes on, well, Oasis. He, he, he saw them supporting Synthetian. They were supporting Synthetian in 1993. He says, "If Oasis didn't exist, no one would want to invent them. (gasps) For a start, they look and sound like they're long overdue product from a bankrupt Scally also runs Ah.
0: factory."
3: Vaguely trippy guitar, almost tunes with vaguely late sixties rock tendencies. Vaguely Ian Brown as Tim Burgess, slob of a frontman, singing in a vaguely tuneless half wine. Vaguely shaking a tambourine. Vaguely, well, you get the picture. It's fantastic. <laughs> and so it's actually funny. Personally, I think spot on, Jennifer. You may be an oh, Oasis oh, dude. Devotee. The first, I- the
0: first two Oasis records. Oh, my! We'll put them on here on like a Saturday <laughs> night after a couple cocktails and be like, ah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> what is it with Americans and Oasis? Because because they weren't really big in the states compared to here, oh, were they? I mean, I just, I just, but you posted this on Facebook, Mark. This quote and a couple of America, a couple of our American writers really jumped to the defense of Oasis. Oh yeah, and said, absolutely. Who, yo, who's Johnny Cigarettes? Blah blah blah. It's like it was very funny. But to I watch. can
0: see all. This. The thing is, I totally, <laughs> I see his it. point a hundred percent. Like I totally get what he said because every single song of Oasis. Okay, I'm seeing her say how much I love them, but every single song, you're like. I've heard this. Oh, yeah! This is a ripoff of X, Y, and Z. Like some <laughs> songs and celebrities, you you can see the influence, but it's not like a direct line. With Oasis, they're not hiding it they 're in well you know what they 're ripping off it 's like right up in your <laughs> face, you know what i mean i
3: 've the misfortune i probably mentioned this in the podcast before uh, misfortune of seeing them at others 's court in one thousand nine hundred and ninety five and the show was like basically the Nuremberg rally on special oh, brew oh and I bolted after about six five minutes not a good just, they weren 't good
0: live when I saw couldn't, them. Couldn't they were crap damn it
3: this week going in Robert Shelton, who marvelous getting him on board thanks to his his heirs they 've allowed us to run his stuff, really important writer for the New York Times in the very early 60s. And it's his review of Bob Dylan playing live at Gerd's, I forget the name of the, 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 the venue, but anyway, it's a, it's, it's, a, it's a club show in New York, very early days, this is 1961. And he says, in his serious vein, Mr. Dylan seems to be performing in a slow motion film. Elasticized phrases are drawn out until you think they may snap. But if not for every taste, his music making has the mark of originality and inspiration, all the more noteworthy for his youth. Mr. Dillon is vague about his antecedents and birthplace, but it matters less where he's been than where he is going. And that would seem to be straight up. It's a, it's a very important, a breakthrough review of him, and which is really important to his career. Moving forward to 1967, the marvellous Maury No Gradius interviewing the tremolos. Who actually have just kind of reinvented themselves. Brian Poole, their leader, they were Brian Poole and the Kremlin, had left. His career promptly tanked, theirs went straight up. They suddenly had hit after hit after hit. But they're a bunch of lads. They say, People used to listen to us uh, were considered the older, nicer types, but now we get the raving birds, and we prefer that, said Alan. Ricky agreed, then remembered he was married. Oh, so, oops, <laughs> said, oops. Okay, this is great. This is 1976 Roy Carr interviewing Debbie Harry. Now, 1976 this is a very, very early Blondie. It may be one of our earliest pieces on them. I think they're mentioned in an earlier thing we have from 75, but this is certainly the first article on them. And she, she talks about stuff she never talked about after, really. She says, I was completely out of my mind. I was into junk. <laughs> I was really fucked up. For a time, it was pretty blank. Now, she doesn't really talk about being a junkie anymore we'll stop doing that fairly rapidly so th- th- that's just really interesting she also says i really want to do something we're struggling to get a sound and a style and make it a whole personal thing jennifer blondie debbie harry
0: who doesn't love them she's the, the Absol- I mean, debbie harry is the bacon of singers like everybody loves debbie harry <laughs> yeah. they add some debbie harry to anything and it just makes it <laughs> a better di- i can't think of anything debbie harry doesn't go with i worship the woman
3: Fantastic. I saw them, and I bought Ex-Offender when it came out, and I remember I spent a weird evening in the basement with Pat Paladin and Judy Lionel from Snatch and Jerry Nolan, Johnny Thunder's Heartbreaks of Drummer, and they were talking about her. And it's slightly sort of like, it's, it's, it's too pop, but it's kind of interesting way. Then I saw them, I think, blow television off the stage at Hammersmith 30 in 1977. They were the support bands, and I thought they were just fantastic. Big fan.
0: I go through, like it's kind of like, she's almost like my... My aunt, like, I love my aunt and I worship my aunt. But sometimes I'm like, oh, my God, you're so cool. And I'm more obsessed with my aunt than others. That's kind of how I am with Debbie Harry. Like, I always love her and think yeah. she's amazing. But sometimes mm-hmm. I'll just, like, see a picture of her or I'll read something she said. I'm just like, how did you do that? Like, I just do not understand, <laughs> like, how one person can be so cool. Like, I I, I struggle to be even a tiny bit cool. You know what I mean? And she's so amazing.
3: Uh, just, just extraordinary. I mean, she was also, you know, she was quite old when she mm-hmm. when. Blondie came together. I mean, in relative terms, she had already had that sort of brief thing with Wind in the Willows, who are a sort of neo psychedelic band. We were talking about Nico's experiences as being a woman in the music industry. I mean, she went through all of that same sort of stuff too. You know, it, it was it was it, it was a she had a tough old time for a good stretch. Uh, moving swiftly on, M People's Mike Pickering talking to John Harris in the enemy in 1994, and this is shortly after M People had Won the Mercury Prize, which was a scandal. All the Oasis people were saying, Why are they giving us prize to a pop group when it should have gone to an indie guitar band? There's absolute outrage. And he says, I loved it. I knew that had happened. On the night, Paul and I said to each other, Brilliant. They'll go fucking mad. Huh. It'll wind so many people up, which is absolutely true. It was absolutely fantastic. I loved the fact they won it. I've got to kind of mention that Heather Small was singer of my old band before m people so i have a certain sort of you know axe to grind there
0: oh no someone do we like
3: her is she is she axe to grind yes or axe to grind no Uh, you know i mean i'm really glad i'm very pleased that she had a major success okay good it's it's, it's great at least something at least something came out of our useless endeavor what did
0: you think what did you think of her being like a supporting character
3: in miranda I didn't know that.
0: Basically, whenever they'd need like a little like, you can do it, girl, they'd bust out like a Heather Smalls mask and be like, and do like a Heather (laughs) Smalls voice. It was brilliant. What happened?
3: Lastly, Caitlin Moran arguing that lyrics are not poetry in The Times in 1996, which I think is a very good argument to make. She says, it's not that words mean nothing. It's just that lyrics aren't meant to be read. They're meant to be shouted, whispered, roared, screamed or chanted by audiences 20,000 strong. Mm. I agree with that. It's a very good argument. I I must admit, I was pretty put out when Bob Dylan won the Nobel Prize for Literature. Mm. I think I felt just putting that out. There. I think I felt
1: anyway. <laughs> 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 Absolutely, Jasper. What have, what have you? What have I, I got? Well, the first here. thing I want to mention is I added a, a review of Britney Spears' "Oops, I Did It Again." Oh, good. And I might have done that on purpose so that we could talk about Britney, given that Jennifer, for all you listeners, Jennifer's wearing a free Britney T-shirt. So this is an interesting review. Barbara Allen in the Times and. Obviously, this is 2000, so near the beginning of the Britney story. Mm -hmm. It's it's a strange review because, I mean, I'll just read a bit of it. In such circumstances, the music becomes almost immaterial. However entertaining Britney is, and she is wildly entertaining, you only have to watch her move, listen to her sing, recall from her more outlandish, sexy grunts across between a possessed Linda Blair in The Exorcist and peak period Jimmy Connors, to know that she doesn't give a cheerleader's pom-pom about music. Which isn't to say that Britney's music is worthless, passionless, heartless, soulless, and humorless, yes, But worthless? No. Personally, I like Britney. Precisely because she makes so few emotional demands on the listener. Her music is just there. Just another slice of the great American pie, eternally cooling on the sill of popular culture. Trying to analyse it further would be like writing a restaurant (laughs) review about a stick of chewing gum. Doubly so because Britney doesn't even write her own material.
0: Oh, scathing. So it's pretty cutting, but it also has that... (laughs) Yeah, it's not not the best. It has a sort of
1: germ of appreciation (laughs) for what Britney kind of did become as far as this really great pop singer. I mean, mm. a great pop performer. I mean, you know, you, you watch Britney perform and it's like this is the peak of pop at the time that it was happening. Mm-hmm.
3: Now, we've got, to, we've got to say at this point, Jennifer is actually writing a book about Britney, which is gonna is due out loosely when Jennifer? Oh,
0: child, it ain't loosely. It's uh, I'm writing a book called Being Britney: Pieces of a Modern Icon. It's out November 11th on Nine Eight Books. Plug, 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 at a good bookstore near you. <laughs> so, I, well, I, one of the great things about that particular piece is I think it completely shows what's happening right now. Is that and it goes all the way back to Nico, the reevaluation of history and what we wrote back then, and how we saw things back then. Now, I don't think someone would write that because it would not; it mm-hmm. would it'd be seen as being too misogynist, and and just it would deride Britney. And what's I want to point your listeners to this amazing video on YouTube, if that's okay. It's Britney Spears covering sure. Alanis Morissette's "You Ought to Know," uh-huh. and. Someone turned me on to this when I first started writing the book, and I actually wrote a piece on it that's in the book. And the reason I say this is because you think of Britney as being this pop, fluffy singer, but this clip is just her on the stage with nobody else, and she rocks this song. It's so raw, mm-hmm. it's so real. And you can hear, first of all, that she can sing. You can hear, you know, she has yes. all this other, she always has like pyrotechnics and d- snakes and hot men and hot women dancing around her. It's just her. And you're like, oh my God, she really is a talent. Because I think one of the things that in that review so perfectly does is for some reason, people have really singled Brittany out as this Piece of fluff in a way that they have an other pop singer. She's not the first mm-hmm. pop singer. She's not going to be the last pop singer. Mm-hmm. But for some reason, she just gets the visceral of everybody for in this time period. And I, that's one thing yeah. I still cannot grasp why. Like, why did that happen? Yeah. Why did we zero in mm-hmm. on this one woman? And that I think is really, really yeah. strange and problematic.
3: I find all, all the stuff, yeah, all the stuff surrounding her today is absolutely extraordinary. Yeah. This the, the, this thing with her father's. Mm guardianship, whatever mm-hmm. it's called. And her basically fighting for her own freedom. It's preposterous that she should be in this position. And, and it, it, it's abusive, I think, it's clearly abusive. Yeah, absolutely. I absolutely, I happen to love, I mean, I, I stopped listening after a while, but I loved her early singles, you know, Hit Me Baby One More Time. And it's just fantastic records. Mm, Sorry, yeah. Barbara Ellen. You know, I think they're just really, really, really great pop, you know.
0: How can you not listen? I mean, how can you not listen to Toxic or Slave I mean, for toxic You? Toxic is
1: so, just, yeah
0: you you yeah. i mean i dare you to have like a couple glasses of wine and be cooking and not be huh, 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 like a slave for you what you know what i mean <laughs> on a on a wednesday night you're going to be doing that i mean and now i mean it's funny because work bitch amazing piece of me yeah. haunting and the to me one of the most amazing things about what's happening right now is the fans not necessarily that they're obsessed with <laughs> britney but the fact that we're mm-hmm. so unengaged with the world around us it's terrifying like we read things i'm just as bad as everybody else i'll read something or i'll see something on tv or i'll read a tweet and i'm like that's horrible somebody needs to do something and then i immediately go back to watching love island or in my case in reality it's watching repeats of hell's kitchen from 2006 and <laughs> reading zombie apocalyptic <laughs> horror to take my mind off what i'm doing and and what's interesting and I think so motivating and inspiring is these people are changing the laws. Like they're actually doing something has nothing to do with them Mm -hmm. for other people. Because what's terrifying is if this is happening to Brittany, how many other people, Brittany is this happening to you? Brittany's not had a voice in over a decade. She's been silenced and she's one of the
1: most, if not the most, you know, powerful biggest
0: celebrities in the world.
1: It's shocking that that can have happened for so long and for it just, it just to continue happening. Is that you're absolutely right that it's like, it's gone on for ages and it's happened to her. Who else? is it happening to who doesn't have that platform that fan base
3: and she's become a money making machine essentially for her father you know which is just grotesque and I love the fact that she's now basically saying she's going on strike no more Vegas Mm -hmm. residences nothing you know let's see how this all
1: pans out and I'm very very much looking forward to your
3: book oh bless you yeah
1: what can you give us a little a little preview of what's the take going to be in your book
0: I would love to but it's going back to the piece that you put up on the Rocksback Mm -hmm. Pages website I think it's so important people read that because you read that and I think when we're like, how could this, this she have been this situation for so long? What you see in that interview, mm-hmm. and it's a woman writing it even. I'm not saying if you have yeah. a vagina, you should be like more like, oh, the sisterhood. Not at all. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But that was something I found writing mm-hmm. about Nico. And it's kind of I, I try not to muddy the waters of Britney and Nico, but I'm like, how can you look at another woman and say such horrible mean things to her about her, especially somewhere publicly? It really upsets me. But mm-hmm. you read that piece and you there's a straight line from that her being dismissed, her being yeah. put down. And that's why no one's listened or cared about what's happening yeah. with
1: her is because Definitely. that
0: narrative was started years before she was put in the conservatorship.
1: Yeah. There's a, there's another yeah. there's another article that I haven't yet added, but I will add in the coming weeks. Catelyn Moran writing in 2007 about... Britney, that was kind of Britney's anus horribilis in a way. It's called Oops, She Messed Up Again, But Who Can Blame Her? Mm. And, and in it, Catelyn Moran writes, I think when you tot it up that we've got far more out of Britney Spears being Britney Spears than Britney ever did. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really true. And Catelyn actually writes about how the press has been vile to her, but how other musicians have actually tried to kind of say, hey, look, actually, this is this is fucked up. What's going on? Kanye West is quoted in the article as blaming MTV for exploiting Britney Spears. And you think, I mean, Kanye West is not exactly a nice guy. And he was, even he said something. And yet, you know, and yet, I think you're absolutely right. The narrative that was built up over the years really made it very difficult for for things to go.
0: Just to be clear with how the book is, it's not a normal, like, Britney was born in this year and then she did this and this was her first. It's it's a mosaic book like the one that Craig Brown did recently about the, the Beatles. So it is. Forty small essays, and each one has specifically looks at an area or an anecdote having to do with Britney's life. So the very first one, for example, it right. tells about when she went on Star Search, which is the X Factor of America in the seventies and eighties, and what that experience mm-hmm. was, and what happens to the guy that actually beat her. And then you, so you go from that to again uh, the whole slave. Right. Like, then we go to like something like Slave for You, and how Peta put up this huge. This whole thing about her using animals in the "Slave for You" VMA performance, but if she hadn't had Banana the Python, would we still be talking about that performance? Having that Python on her shoulders like made that, <laughs> you know what I mean? So there's there's kind of like yeah, these yeah. snippets throughout her career, and we're looking at it through just uh, the lens of today, but also through the you know how did this all happen? How did we get to where we are now with Brittany? Yeah. So I think it's going to be it's going to be a different take than other books on her, but hopefully one that will inform people and let them see her in a different way in a positive way well, I
1: really look forward
3: to reading it really look forward to it <laughs> baby can't you see I'm calling a
0: guy like you
3: should wear- Jasper, you got anything else to talk about?
1: Yeah, just a couple of things to just mention quickly. We, I think we mentioned it when David Camp, well, you guys, I wasn't here. You mentioned it when David Camp was on the podcast. He wrote this 12,000-word oral history of the Brill Building in 2001 for Vanity right. Fair. I just wanted to mention that because it's a, it's a fantastic. If you're interested at all in any of that stuff, I mean, you know, Lieber and Stoller, sure. Barry Mann and Cynthia Wilde, Carol King and Jerry Goffin, right through to Neil Diamond, Steely Dan. It's like, it, you know, it's, it's a really fascinating interview or series of interviews. Then an early, well, sort of early piece on grime, Will Hermes in Spin in 2006, um, where he writes about, watching a genre invent itself is one of pop's great thrills. With rules ill-defined at best, even artistic duds become compelling for how they complete the cultural picture. So it is with UK grime, which has been a train spotter's fairground for the past year. So, you know, it's, it's, it's an interesting piece on that front obviously mentions, you know, Kano, Sway, Crazy Titch, you know, Da Vinci, all of, all of those early grime artists. It's, 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 it's worth, it's just a review of a compilation, but it's worth reading for that. Excellent. Then Levine Hudson, a tribute. I think you sent me this, Mark. Tony Cummings pays tribute to Levine Hudson in 2017 when she she died. Life and Death of a British Gospel Diva. Well worth a read because that's interesting. And then lastly, I wanted to mention a piece by Don Armstrong, a music journalism history, another really long piece, like 10,000 word piece about women music journalists in America from 1920 to 1960, which is a kind of area that we don't talk that much about because it's not been written about that much. But he writes really, it's well-researched, it's very interesting. He really makes the case that these writers, he writes, these writers shaped the aesthetic codes of their chosen genres. They coalesced networks of fans. Working behind the scenes, they guided the careers of key musicians. As editors, these women mediated the form and content of the leading music magazines of the Times they paved the way for the more well-known writers of the 1960s and 70s, and so on and so on. All of this is to say the story of women in music journalism has yet to be fully told. And I think it's just, it's a good history from a couple of years ago. uh, And it, it covers an area that we don't have much on yet. And I hope more will be written about.
3: Absolutely. Great stuff. Well, this is us pretty much wrapping up. We're going to go out with Jackson Brown talking very fondly and very interestingly about his father. Jennifer, thank you so much for joining us. It's just been a joy. It's been wonderful. Um, as Thank you, Predictable joy. We knew it was going to be.
0: Thank you so much for having me. I love you boys. And it's always
3: an absolute pleasure to get to do anything with you. Thank <laughs> Thanks so much for coming on. We'll be back in a couple of weeks. On that happy note, we'll say goodbye. Bye. Bye. Daddy, what was I supposed to do?
4: I don't know why it was so hard. He told me when I was a kid, he said that he enjoyed his time in the military, best time in his life because he didn't have to think. And I couldn't believe he was saying that to me. I, thought, I mean, I was 14, and he was thinking, oh, that's really good. That's really good. You had the, it was the best time of your life because you didn't have to think? I just thought that was like that. It's the worst. The worst thing anybody had ever said to me was like, "and this is my father speaking." But I mean, it was a wise. Thing. It was in his own way. He was, being, you know, of course, he was being honest, and he was being. He was talking about something that I had no way of appreciating at that stage of my life. But I was very influenced by my father's, you know, my father's personality. He was a really outgoing guy. He 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 played piano. He. he he was hilarious and he, he had a he kind of habitually spoke in double entendres all the time all the time double meanings and like little asides to himself which could be taken one of two ways or either way both ways and, and it sort of influenced my love of language and my use of the language but daddy I wanna let you know somehow the things you said so much clearer
1: That was Jackson Brown in conversation with Adam Sweeting in 2014, concluding this week's Rocks Back Pages podcast. Many thanks to special guest Jennifer Otter-Bickerdike. Her new Nico book, You Are Beautiful and You Are Alone, is published by Faber and available now from all good bookshops. Visit her website at jenniferotterbickerdike.com. The host was Mark Pringle, and it was co-hosted and produced by Jasper Murison and Bowie. The Rocks Back Pages podcast is part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. You can find thousands of articles as well as hundreds of full-length audio interviews at rocksbackpages.com.